0: And you are listening to the WOKV Spotlight on District 4 as we get ready for the Florida primary on August 30th. My name is Kevin Rafuse, and joining me today is Mr. Ed Malin. Ed, how are you today?
1: I'm excellent, Kevin. Thank you for
0: having me. Let's get right into it. We got a packed field as we get ready for the primary coming up in just a few days here on the 30th. So I guess first off, with Andrew Crenshaw retiring, what made you want to jump into this race for District 4, and what makes you want to represent District 4 in Congress?
1: Well, Kevin, I've been screaming uh, probably at the top of my lungs for many years as a small business owner. Owner in Jacksonville. Um, I kind of got involved back when the Tea Party took its birth in 2008, 9, 10. And uh, and when I saw that uh, Andrew Crenshaw had, was was contemplating retirement back in April, I said to my wife, you know, maybe I should, maybe it's time for a businessman, a, a hardworking taxpayer, to stop screaming from the sidelines and jump into the fray and see if he can make a difference. And uh, I did it. If you'd asked me a few months ago that I would be running for a congressional seat, I would have said you were crazy. But here I am, uh, and I and I'm and I'm working, uh, you know, working hard on this campaign to hopefully go to Washington and make a difference. Well, you mentioned your experience as a small business owner here
0: in Jacksonville, and one of the big platforms of Governor Scott's tenure has been the promotion of jobs here in Jacksonville and throughout the state of Florida. We've seen just here in Northeast Florida alone, Amazon, for example, a big company coming to the first coast. It's actually, uh, Forbes released an article the other day in a study that showed that Jacksonville is the second most attractive destination for people moving across the country. So a lot of momentum here in Florida. How would you use your business experience, and how would you continue continue to promote job growth here in Florida on a federal level.
1: Well, as you may know, 65% of the people that go to work every day go to work for a small businessman just like myself. Small business is the engine of America's economy. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and and actually, North Florida mirrors those statistics exactly. 65% of the people that go to work in North Florida go to work for a small business person just like myself. So um, our economy is stagnant. Uh, there are emerging economies around the world uh, who are quickly catching up to the United States. Se- China's only $7 trillion behind us in GDP right Right now Uh, and they have a huge workforce and loads of natural resources to compete with uh, uh, what america really doesn't put out so what we need to focus on in this country i think is is the opposite of what bernie sanders and what hillary clinton clinton are touting Uh, and i I don't tiptoe around topics uh, but uh, increasing the minimum wage would be the stupidest absolute stupidest thing that we could do in this country because anybody who takes Hell, a first, first fifth, fifth grader knows that the more something costs, the less of it that w- there will there, that will be purchased. The high, the, the the higher the price of something, the less demand there will be for it. If we raise the price on labor, we're going to get less labor. What we need to do in this economy in this country is reduce the minimum wage we'll put a heck of a lot more people to work if we simply reduce the minimum wage because here's a real a reality that nobody's going to talk about and i don't use any political correctness and i'm sorry you may have had to beep a few words out already uh there's a lot of people in this country that aren't worth eight bucks an hour and that's why they're not working so kind of an issue that goes hand in hand
0: with, with jobs and with the, the loss of a lot of jobs here in America is, is immigration. And mm-hmm. we mentioned we've seen calls on both sides of the aisle for immigration reform. It's been the means that have been different. We saw President Obama's executive actions, for example, they were uh, put on hold by the Supreme Court. We've seen Donald Trump on the other side of the token go as far as building a wall across the southern border. I guess where do you stand when it comes to fixing immigration reform and as it's been something that's called for by both parties?
1: It is. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm all, I stand with Donald Trump on this. I don't agree with a lot of the things that he says, and I shouldn't say a lot, but some of the things that he says. But a sovereign nation is defined by its borders. We have to have secure borders. That's just common sense legislation. Enforce the laws that are on the books right now. Uh, I don't, I don't. Whatever the number is, between 11 and 15 million illegal aliens in this country. And here's something that Hans Tansler needs to pound on Rutherford for. John Rutherford, who leads, who is the leader in the race that I am in right now. Uh, he polled at 30% just yesterday. He continually says, criminal, illegal aliens. Have you ever ever heard of a law-abiding illegal alien? Anybody ever heard of that? That's ridiculous. He keeps saying criminal, illegal aliens because when he was a sheriff, he told his officers not to arrest illegal aliens until they broke another law. He touts himself as the big crime fighter, Um and Hansler's been t- hammering on that, and I and I applaud Tansler for doing that. But he needs to raise his voice a little bit more, and so does everybody else in this race. So um, illegal alien—I mean, illegal immigration—needs to be brought under control for sure. I think they all need to be rounded up and deported. I don't care if I say I, I put it to you like this, Kevin. If a pregnant woman broke into your house last night and downloaded a baby in the middle of your kitchen, would you be responsible for raising that kid for the next 18 years, housing it, clothing it, feeding it, putting it to school, through school? Heck no, you wouldn't. What would you do? You'd call the police and have the lady arrested and put in jail. That's what we need to do in this country.
0: So another, you ma- you mentioned uh, Sheriff Rutherford there and his stance on crime and we've seen in recent months a lot of um, tension to say the least between police and between a number of the communities they serve. Um, incidents in Baton Rouge and Minnesota with African American men being killed by police and on the opposite side of the spectrum we saw five officers gunned down in Dallas. We saw three officers gunned down in Baton Rouge. Wh- what do we need to do on a federal level to restore trust so that both the communities that officers serve are safe and the officers themselves are kept out of harm's way?
1: Well, tell you what i've been doing what i've done lately kevin and i don't and this is not on a federal level i think this really needs to be done on a local level i own a couple of restaurants at the beach and i had a very generous donor here recently write me a two thousand dollar check uh he's he wanted to remain anonymous and he said he just wanted to simply buy cops lunch every time they walked into my sandwich shop i paid he would pay for their lunch and i said here's a better idea why don't we take that $2,000, invite the cops in, and let's get the kids from the Boys and Girls Club, right down there at the beach, to also come in at the same time and eat lunch with those cops. So what? that's what we did. We brought uh, different age groups, young, youngsters, uh, 12-year-old on up to 16 and 17-year-olds to eat lunch with the cops. And you should have seen the camaraderie that was, Those these were what you would call at, at-risk youth. They had never really had a conversation with a cop. All they ever saw were, were cops, you know, with their guns drawn and a dead guy laying in the street they kind of looked at as monsters we brought them together sat down with lunch uh they had lunch for an hour with each other they left the restaurant hand in hand i mean it brought tears to people's eyes it was a, it was an amazing thing but that's what the kind of thing we need to do we need to bring the youth and the cops together um especially at the, these at-risk youth whose parents may be maybe have had conflicts with the law or who may be in jail um but but my cops are just people doing a hard job and a mostly a thankless job I want to switch gears a little bit sure. now. It's it's an
0: issue that's come up in, in recent years. We know with Jacksonville being such a military-heavy town, the importance of the Navy here at Mayport, NAS Jack's obviously another huge base. But we we have our veterans who are responsible for going, who have to go to the VA, I should say, and it's been a system that's come under a lot of fire with veterans having to wait an extremely long amount of time to get the care they need, sometimes not even getting in at all. How do we go about reforming that VA system so that way we can
1: ensure that our vets get the best care possible? It's an excellent question. It's one that I talk to. Uh, again, I own restaurants, and I'm out near Mayport. And uh, North Florida District 4 has one of the largest veteran populations in the country. So I talk to lots of them uh, on a daily basis. I have not served in the military. My father was a Vietnam vet. I was actually born when he was in Southeast Asia. But, uh, but uh, when I talk to those vets they almost all say the same thing. Once they get the care, once they get in the system, they love their doctors, they love their nurses. The big problem is getting to the care. Obviously, uh, here in Jacksonville, it's an absolute... it's, It's ridiculous that these vets have to drive by five of the finest hospitals in the Southeast to go to Gainesville or go to Lake Lake City to uh, to get care uh, in, a, in a hospital. If we can figure out as a country how to get 59 million people food stamps every month, we should certainly be able to get uh, our veterans the care that they deserve in an, in an expeditious fashion.
0: You mentioned your father serving in Vietnam and growing up in a military family. What type of impact did that have on you growing up?
1: That is, a, nobody's asked me that question, Kevin. And I'm glad you did. Um, I, I don't know what my father experienced in Vietnam. It was a taboo topic in our household with my grandparents, my father's parents, and with my mother. It was just not, I don't know what my dad experienced or what he did or what he saw in Vietnam, but it certainly had a huge impact on his life. And it therefore, uh, part of probably the one of the reasons I'm doing this and one of the reasons that drives my mentality are the things that happened to my father that I don't even know about because it uh, what happened to him in Southeast Asia impacted him to such a great deal. Uh, and he was a big, strong guy, uh, but it, it, it weighed heavy on his mind until the day he died. And an issue that's weighing heavily on a lot of people's minds, a more
0: military-minded issue, is the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Um, Many fears of terrorism here in the United States. We've seen overseas in Europe attacks recently in Paris and Brussels and Nice, so certainly escalating those fears. So far, President Obama has kept the campaign to airstrikes, along with some special forces on the ground in both Syria and Iraq. What have you thought about that campaign so far, and do you think it needs to be escalated, or if there were any changes that you would like to see, what would they be?
1: man this is a tough question to answer in a couple of minutes but uh certainly i mean the the com- the common sense answer is we need to fight islamic extremism where it grows and that is in the in the middle east and for many years america did a very good job of containing Uh, that that for the most part containing the problems of islamic extremism to the middle east Uh, now that extremism has been exported we are we are i hate to say that it's it's more commonplace in the united states but obviously it is i hate to i would hate to think that we get conditioned to it what we did in the past worked very well uh bush 41 was a great example he understood and so did his predecessors actually that and i hate to say this but Paying the best bad guy in the Middle East, paying the best, paying Gaddafi, uh, paying Saddam uh, to be the best bad guys in those countries kept chaos from spreading in the Middle East. And through dispo- through dis- diplomacy and through, through payola, really, we kept that chaos there. Now we started to meddle the obama administration along with hillary clinton started to meddle in this arab spring that was supposed to reform the middle east well it didn't what it did was create more chaos now libya has is, is in complete chaos because we meddled beyond what we beyond beyond you know it's it's a, it's a, it's a hard to it's hard to explain uh, but and I certainly don't have all the answers, but had we not meddled to the and Bush 43, he's he's he he should he shoulders a big responsibility for his meddling with Saddam. Had we kept the 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 the, the our mentality on on containing that Middle East, or uh, containing the uh, the Middle Eastern problems to the Middle East with payola and with um, basically by I'm I'm, I'm on about this, but. Uh, our foreign aid packages to the Middle East can, were consisted of military hardware and money, and that uh, that mentality that payola kept appeased the bad guys, and that was our that was the best thing we could do. It's the meddling in the Middle East that that's happened in the past few years that I think has led to the exportation of Islamic extremism to our shores. Uh, it's no easy answer there, but I am not a boots on the ground guy.
0: So I want to bring it back home now. It's an issue that's come up in recent months, especially 400 cases now over 400, I should say, of the Zika virus here in Florida. We've seen Governor Scott, Senators Rubio, and Nelson really trying to get out in front of this. Congress not passing funding yet, so it's still a bit unclear of what's going to happen. How big of a concern is Zika to you, and what do you think the federal government needs to do in terms of keeping Zika at bay to prevent a larger spread? One of the
1: most important obligations the federal government has is the protection of the citizenry, of course, not just militarily but also in a public uh, health uh, as as public health as as a policy of public health, uh, Zika is is going to be is an issue that has to be funded. We have to contain it. Uh, it, it should be a, a major priority of the federal government. Uh, I I speak about priorities. Um, there's only so much money to go around, uh, but certainly Congress needs to get a handle on this. It's something that both Democrats and Republicans should be able to agree on, and and containing this virus. Uh, before it gets out of hand, has to be a priority of the next sitting Congress.
0: We've got a crowded field as we approach the primary coming up in just a few days now. So as, a, as an outsider in this election, what uniquely qualifies you to represent District 4 and why do you think you're best suited to represent Northeast Florida on a federal level?
1: There are three main reasons, uh, Kevin. Number one, I'm not a politician. Uh, and if we want something new out of Congress, we got to put something new into Congress. And what we've been putting into Congress lately are career politicians, attorneys, and and government bureaucrats and government employees. Those people take a different mindset to problem-solving in Congress. And what, what the people of District 4 are doing is is, is hiring a problem-solver when they send someone to Washington, D.C. Uh, number two, I'm totally self-funding my campaign. This is one thing that sets me apart from everyone else in this race. I believe firmly, with every cell in my body, that the, that the uh, corruption you see in Washington, D.C., is seeded by campaign contributions. There is no way anybody on the planet or with two brain cells would say that the two leaders in this race, Hans Tanzler and uh, John Rutherford, who have over a million dollars between them, are not going to go to work for the people who are financing their campaigns uh, over the people who cannot afford to make a campaign contribution. Ed Malin not taking any money from anyone. Therefore, I will my allegiance will be to the people of District 4 evenly and to the all Americans evenly. The third thing that sets me apart, I'm a small businessman. I'm a, I've owned businesses in Jacksonville, uh, restaurants for nearly 20 years. In those 20 years, I have created over 600 private sector jobs. I don't think John Rutherford's created one private sector job. We have enough government employees going to Congress to solve problems with the Duval County is a perfect example of this right now. A perfect example. What is the answer... From Lenny Curry and, uh, to, to solving uh, Duval County's uh, pension crisis. Raise taxes, raise taxes, raise taxes. In the private sector, I can't call up the mayor and the city council and say, hey, I can't make payroll next week. Can you raise the taxes so that I can? Doesn't work that way. I got to get down in the dirt and get dirty. I got to get efficient in the private sector. That's what I bring to this seat. That's what the, that's what my, and that's what my competitors don't bring. And you're listening to the WOKV District 4 Spotlight. We want to thank everybody for
0: tuning in. My name is Kevin Rayfuse. We've been joined in studio today by Mr. Ed Malin. Ed, thanks for joining us.
1: Anytime you need me.